Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 21 of the Healthy Gut Podcast, and today we're joined by Jessica Cox, who is a passionate foodie and qualified practicing nutritionist with a Bachelor Health Sciences Nutrition with over 10 years of clinical experience. Jess is the founder and business owner of the successful JCN Clinic based in Brisbane, Australia. The Jessica Cox Nutritionist Clinic treats all facets of health conditions, though specialises with digestive issues and food intolerances. Jess is also the creator of the Jessica Cox website and blog, which is an expression of everything she loves rolled into one, including her passion for creating recipes that cater for food intolerances. Jess and I talk a lot about how to eat for SIBO today and how she finds a diet protocol that works with her clients, whether she sticks to one protocol, whether she modifies it. So should we go into that in quite a lot of detail because I know that food and nutrition is often a key thing for us SIBOers as we're treating our SIBO. We also talk about things like should we be using supplements? What does Jessica do when it comes to pre and probiotics and also so fermented foods, and whether we should be starving or feeding the bacteria. So today's episode is fascinating stuff around all things nutrition with nutritionist Jessica Cox. Welcome to the show, Jessica Cox. It's really great to have you on today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'd love for you to tell my listeners a little bit about how you came to be a qualified and practicing nutritionist based in Brisbane, Australia. Yes, well, I've been practicing for a bit over 10 years now as a nutritionist. Um, as far as I, as how I became to be a nutritionist, um, I kind of came from a, a different background to start with. I'd been working in a completely different field in arts and design and so forth, but I always had this underlying really strong passion and interest in food. Um, I grew up on a farm which was quite self-sustainable, um, one of those sort of stories where you kind of grow up in an environment that you don't realise is any different and then um, later on, you're like, oh, that was quite a different experience to have. And I was pretty lucky. So 
I, I came from that environment. I had a mum that was really interested in putting food together from absolute basics and baking her own bread and all of those sorts of things. So it was quite instilled in me. And um, as the years ticked along, um, I just got to a point where that passion grew more and more. Um, I also had some of my own food intolerances going on at the time that I wasn't aware of and digestive issues and it just accumulated in me being a lot more interested in food and how it affects the body and um, it just again it became a turning point where I thought I think this is something that I want to investigate further so I started studying just part-time while I was working and after six months of part-time that was it I was hooked I I was just like yep this is me this is what I want to do so I took a leap and I went full-time with my studies stopped working full-time in the career that I was in and just picked up some part-time work um, and just immersed myself in nutrition and I just I just loved it I think being a little bit of a mature age student too I was very very nerdy about it I was always sitting up the front of the class and taking it all in um, and I came out the other side of that and literally went straight into practice um, and I have been practicing ever since uh, I've never really had a break from practice I just really adored the process um, and I, I relatively would say too I've always practiced under my own name I think I've had one year out of all of that where I work for someone else but essentially I've work with building my own practice and my own business. And here I am 10 years later. Wonderful. How exciting. And congratulations on on getting to 10 years. You know, as a business owner myself, it is an achievement. So um, well done because it isn't yeah. easy to stay in business for yourself that long. It is, yeah, that's so true. And then suddenly you're there and you're like, really? Wow. <laughs> Where did that 10 years go? Yeah. One of the things that you do do is you work with people with irritable bowel syndrome and also mm -hmm. SIBO. And mm -hmm. I'd love for you to share um, the kind, a bit of information about the kinds of people that you have um, coming through and who you work with. For sure. So we've really built a reputation here at the JCN Clinic um, with working with gut issues in particular. So we do see a variety of clients but but gut um, health is definitely at our core so because of that we see a lot of clients that will come through with a diagnosed IBS from a GP um, or they may have been to, through a series of gastroenterologists with different investigations as far as colonoscopies and endoscopies and so forth and they're just at their wits end they've been told there's nothing wrong um, it's we definitely don't have people who come through the door saying I've got SIBO can I be treated by you or I have this it's, it's generally we're going through that diagnostic with them as far as testing and really looking at what we need to do as far as treatment and and in relation to those test results that tend to come through there but um, I would say that gastrointestinal issues are very much the core of what we treat Mm. And for those people that you do end up discovering um, that they've got SIBO, what's your approach around the nutritional component um, for them? Because that is such an 
an important piece for people who have um, SIBO or, or IBS because um, food often equals symptoms. <laughs> so there's a very strong correlation, especially a psychological one, with what a person is eating and how they feel. How do you how do you work with them around getting them to feel better and uh, finding food or nutrition that's working for them? So it's it's very much a one-on-one process to start with. It's very individualized. So there's there's definitely an underlying protocol that we'll utilize, but I can't stress enough how much it comes down to each person and working with their specific requirements. So if someone comes through and they've tested positive placebo, then there's definitely um, a guideline or approach that we'll go through. But often with our testing too, we're looking outside of that. So we'll probably have done some uh, lower bowel testing as well. So we might also be dealing with um, a yeast overgrowth or parasites or dysbiosis. It's it's often multifactorial in how we're approaching that. Um, The other element is we do a lot of food intolerance testing. So often that might be involved as well. So it's not always as simple as... Um, yes, you have SIBO, so you need to follow this particular diet um, and give them a list of foods to avoid and that's it. Um, in saying that, we will start, we do tend to use that biphasic diet as a guide um, for our clients, but then from that, we'll sit down with them and we'll go over the diet and we'll look at extra components such as maybe uh, food intolerances if they're prevalent, Um, If there's dysbiosis at play, we might need to look at certain foods that we need to avoid as well. Um, Potentially from a yeast overgrowth too, that might influence what we do with the diet. Um, So from there, what we'll do is we'll put together a really extensive dietary plan that will have lots of meals and snacks um, as far as options for them. We'll include recipes um, we, we definitely don't give people a list of what not to eat and then just say, see you later, off you go. Um, we're very, very passionate about making sure that when we're looking at the dietary approach that they have a really good cemented um, guide of how to eat because otherwise we find people get so confused um, and all they see is what they can't eat. Uh, it's so, so important to, to give them that really good foundation. One of the things I hear um, from people a lot is just enormous confusion over what um, SIBO diet to follow because there's multiple of them out there. They're all slightly different to one another. Some of them are completely um in opposition to each other in terms of certain foods. Some might be considered as a food to avoid and and on another list it might say, that's fine, eat it. Um, What would be your advice to somebody who's listening today who is perhaps feeling completely overwhelmed and doesn't know where to start? Would your advice be to seek out the services of a nutritionist or or are there things that they can do themselves um, that might be able to help alleviate some of this stress and anxiety around what foods to eat? I guess, I mean, I'm always big on getting guidance because I think, I think that's so important to ensure you've still got nutritional balance because the problem for me when you're putting any sort of uh, restrictions on a diet is that, yes, you can take away foods that might be aggravating, but you might end up eating in a very unbalanced way and end up with a plethora of other problems. So that always is a big concern for me. 
Um, but essentially, I guess if someone has been diagnosed with SIBO, then I would say for them to be looking at really pulling back on their starch intake, um, looking at the FODMAPs as well. Um, and I guess looking at, I know it's online, it's accessible for people looking at that biphasic diet as a very rough guideline and a way to start. Um, but even if people haven't been diagnosed, uh, they could look at playing around over a series of a couple of weeks with following even just a little bit of a, a low starch, low FODMAP dietary intake and seeing if they feel a little better. And often if they notice they feel a little better, and often these people will come to you in clinic saying, I know that these foods aggravate me. I know that if I have a lot of starch, if I have a lot of these types of uh, say, you know, my garlics and my onions and so forth, you know, they just give me so much grief. They tend to tick boxes. So applying those yourself can often give you a little bit of a light bulb moment of like, aha, uh -huh, okay, this is an area that needs further investigation. But I am very, I am very wary of people just playing around with this on their own accord. I do strongly think it needs to be under the guidance of a practitioner. I really do. I hear from people quite frequently who are down to five foods yeah. and I see it on the SIBO um, forums online and it, it's really upsetting to, to think of people who are so limited in the food that they're able to consume now because everything else is causing a reaction. And then I hear from other people saying, even water now causes a reaction. I cannot consume a single yeah. thing, including water, without it causing a reaction. So yeah, if someone has, right. is at that point, because I know that some of my listeners are, what would be your advice to them on what they can do today to, to try and perhaps alleviate some of that pain and aggravation that they're going through and, and then maybe some yeah. next steps on what they could do potentially do to get some help that they need to reintroduce some better nutritional um, intake? Well, look, I think the, at the core um, of the problem there is the gut function itself. So when you're getting someone who is so reactive to the point they're talking about having problems with water or they're down to four or five foods, you have to step back and look at the bigger picture. And I think the problem is when people are self-treating they get so hung up on the food itself uh, and it's all about what can I cut out next or what am I reacting to and they don't tend to look at the fact that there's actually a problem with their gut that needs to be treated and once that's treated and worked with then they're not going to be so reactive overall. Um, you know, that to me is so, so important. Um, I've certainly had clients, um, you talk about the water issue, like with feeling like water's reacting with them. I've had clients swear to me that they're intolerant to water, um, which is pretty amazing, or, or just be able to eat, as you say, like three or, four, three or four foods. So what we tend to do there is look straight at the gut and we're looking at how can we down-regulate that inflammatory reaction? How can we work with that overreactive immune system within the gut? So there we're looking at settling that inflammation down and regulating the immune system of the gut. Now, from my point of view, from a practice point of view, to be honest, I'd be doing that with probably a few key supplements. Um, potentially, um, I'd be looking at some strains of probiotics um, to help with 
that increased reactivity with the immune system. Um, definitely some LGG we'd be looking at getting in there. Um, depending on what they can handle, we might be looking at just some straight glutamine, for instance. We'd certainly be looking at supporting uh, maybe some zinc and some vitamin A and vitamin D, just definitely supporting that gastrointestinal tract as much as possible. Um, from a food point of view, uh, you, again, you need to really work with that client. So the problem is when they're that reactive um, and, and that sort of stressed around food, getting them to trial some different foods at that point can be really hard. But we generally are still trying to encourage them, okay, let's look at bringing into the picture still some of some more common low reactants. Um, let's look at using foods that are broken down a little easier already, whether we're looking at some broths or some soups or some smoothies with lots of natural anti-inflammatories in there that are really simple and easy to digest that we can use to, again, just really simplify that gut process while all that inflammation is settling down. Um, you're usually fine with people, well, we definitely see this as they'll go through ebbs and flows. So they might have a period where they do get that really strong flare up. And with that, they're getting this increased reactivity where they feel like everything they consume is problematic. So it, it, it's working with them through that period and really addressing it from both sides, from a diet and generally, as I say, a, a supplementation form. Again, that's where a good practitioner steps in um, and really makes a difference because my concerns there are if someone's going to a chemist or a health food store and just buying things off the shelf, are they getting the right thing? You know, are they potentially, they think they're buying the right supplement that they might be buying a probiotic that's dairy-based or they might be buying something that's got um, a powder that's filled with a whole lot of prebiotics for where they're at at that point may not be the best thing. So, you know, it, it really comes down to having that right guidance. I see, um, unfortunately, uh, reasonably frequently on some of the SIBO forums that people are self-treating and they're reading um, what other people are using, other supplements and herbal mm -hmm. antibiotics, for instance, that other people are, are using. Mm -hmm. And then they're ordering them online and they're self-medicating yes. and then having um, all sorts of variety of responses to it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's what, what you're saying is really important is working with someone that has the experience and the qualifications to be able to support your health journey um, mm -hmm. because my my concern for some of these people is that they can make themselves worse they can end up in a worse state um because they're so restricted in food and and uh and mm -hmm. who knows whether those supplements like you say are actually the right ones for them that's right exactly it's why i'm always hesitant even just to start listing a whole lot of supplements because it it might be great for one person but it may not be suited for the next and it just depends on where you are in your journey as to what is the best supplement or what is the best approach you, you may be at a point where supplements aren't even something you should be even thinking about so it really is a case-by-case -case basis mm, definitely when you are working with someone that is just in such a highly inflamed state and they're reacting to everything 
Is there a general length of time that you see that that someone can come out of that flare and, and start to um, be able to tolerate more foods or is it, again, a very individualised uh, case-by-case scenario mm-hmm. in terms of length of time it takes to to calm yeah. down no it's a good question it is it is definitely individualized um i guess in saying that i usually would say it's a couple of weeks um if you're working with someone from the get-go if you've if you've done say some testing and you know you've got SIBO at play or some other issues with dysbiosis and you're starting to treat that um, you know, anywhere from sort of four to six weeks, you might see that they start to push into a place where they can introduce a little bit more variety back into their diet. So that's a, a very, very rough time frame. sometimes we'll work with. Um, but if someone's having, say, a, a, a flare, and some clients I can think of that will get like a really strong flare and get really, really reactive, Um, generally if we get on top of that straight away within a week or two we can settle it down pretty quickly um, with knowing the right things to use for them and with adjusting their diet Um, the interesting thing too I guess as a side note that I've seen is that with those types of pictures where people are super reactive generally they've got themselves into into a place as you were mentioning where they're just eating limited foods um and they're eating them all the time. So their immune system is getting to a point where they're starting to react to those foods. Um, again, because they're not really treating the problem as effectively, they're, they're just cutting foods out. So after a certain amount of time, this increased reactivity starts to these foods that they're now consuming. So we find by treating their gut in that time of flare but also adjusting their diet so we take them a little bit away from their safe foods and push them to some foods that maybe they have been avoiding we actually get quite a good response um, because suddenly those foods um, are new Um, but what we do there is we tend to not oversaturate them with those foods we tend to use a variety of a, a few different things and really encourage our clients to have a little bit of this and a little bit of that and really try and get as much variety as possible Um, and that tends to really help with those flare situations too. Do you see with those patients that they would um, have some symptoms arise after trying a new food and is that something that um, that someone should expect if they've gone down to say a five food uh, diet? Yeah yeah for sure so Again, it can vary. It sort of depends on how symptoms present themselves for people. But if their symptoms are usually gastrointestinal, then if you're introducing a new food and then their system isn't quite ready for that food, they'll certainly show a response, whether that's be heightened bloating or bowel dysregularity. Um, sometimes, though, depending on where they're at, you may say, okay, let's see how this food goes for you over an introductory period of a couple of days. Um, And we might find for the first one to two days, they notice a bit of bloating and gas. And then after that, it feels fine. Um, I guess a good example of that would be legumes. So when you're obviously taking legumes away um, in these dietary protocols, and then you reintroduce them, they're quite um, a common (laughs) fermentable food. So, you know, we always say to people, you haven't had legumes for quite some time when you bring them in you do need to expect 
some element of gas, some element of wind. So let's keep that in mind. So it's for us, it's being able to differentiate between, okay, what's a, what's just a new food going in um, and having just a little bit of a, a response in regards to, oh, this is new, this is different, as opposed to what's a full-blown inflammatory reaction. And you can usually tell that when you know your clients so well and you know their symptoms. Um, you know, some people might try new food and their whole body feels inflamed or they get aches and pains and headaches and it's usually quite severe. So you know that that's not the right food for them. So, mm. yeah, again, it's very much about that individual. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things that I know that can occur with people with uh, SIBO and other gut disorders um, is around malnourishment. Are you seeing people coming through your clinic that are malnourished and, and then you know needing to work with them on how they can perhaps incorporate more nutrient-rich foods or, uh-huh. or do they need to address the issue that's going on in their um, gastrointestinal system before that doesn't matter how many nutrient dense foods they eat um, it's not going to be absorbed properly what's your approach to that I think it's a little bit of both it would depend on where they're at but yeah usually if they're at such a restrictive stage then their gut is usually quite a mess so you do need to look at identifying the issue there and working with rectifying that and therefore you're encouraging an environment where absorption is going to be better. They're going to pull more from their food. Their bacteria is going to be healthier as far as fermentation and so forth goes. So naturally that's going to aid the process. However, even just anyone being on such a restrictive diet, their, their nutritional intake is going to be quite poor. So I would say getting in and making changes with their diet as much as possible is definitely a number one step for us, whether the gut will always be something we'll be getting into as well, but we would very much be focusing on, okay, we need to diversify your diet out. We need to look at what foods you can have because a lot of the time people don't perhaps realise what they can still eat with certain dietary protocols if they've been trying to do things themselves or The other thing we commonly see is if they've been following, um, say, a list of foods, they may not know how to put those foods together to create some really different or exciting meals. So they tend to stay within the realms of what they know. So we, we find that if we can get in and diversify within the spectrum of foods we feel we can work with and also the other massive area we see is people aren't aware of how to create macronutrient balanced meals. So we'll see they may be eating a diet that is mainly, say, vegetable-based or plant-based and they're not getting enough protein. Um, Or we may see someone that's getting protein and vegetables, but um, they're not getting carbohydrate from the right sources that work for them. Um, It could be a fat issue that they, they actually aren't, putting the right building blocks together to create nourishing meals. And as a result of that, there's um, fatigue issues, um, blood sugar up and down through the day. We often see even bowel issues alone just from not having really good macronutrient balance. So we tend to jump on that straight up within the first consultation. We're going through giving them a better balanced approach, even within the restrictions that they're working with. Um, And then we'll go, okay, how can we start rolling 
the ball in the direction of healing your gut, working with maximising your absorption. I think, um, you know, once again, as as is the case with so many of the interviews that I do through the Healthy Gut Podcast, it's all about having a personalised and tailored approach to your own individual needs and having a dream team of health professionals that can help you on that journey. And given that food and nutrient, um, nutrient-rich food uh, is our life source, mm-hmm. um, it makes sense to me to have someone like yourself, a nutritionist or a dietitian that understands understands um, conditions like SIBO working with you to really tailor um, the yeah. foods that you can eat so that you can enjoy them again. That's the food's great. We should love eating and it really saddens me that so many people are so upset and anxious around food and I know you're the same. Yeah. You love food and cooking as well. Yeah, that's it. And look, I get such a kick out of working even with highly restrictive food plans and then taking that and helping clients still create a nourishing and delicious daily food plan like it can it can always be done Um, it's just thinking outside the box Um, and I find that really rewarding you know definitely for for people to come back and be like that's really delicious I feel great and that's really really yum (laughs) you know like that's what you want and that's that's how you get compliance that's how you get people sticking with things long term um you know food food needs to be beautiful as well as nourishing it does definitely i know one of the kicks i get out of life these days now that i've got my um three SIBO cookbooks out in the world Mm -hmm. uh, is hearing from people from all over the place saying oh gosh thanks so much rebecca i now have a variety of recipes that taste good that I really enjoy cooking or my kids now help cook them with me mm-hmm. um, and I'm not I'm not just eating the same foods that I've eaten for the last six months I'm you know I'm broadening my food intake and I'm really enjoying it and I just love that that's why I, why I've gone and created yeah, those cookbooks definitely. so that people can be happy with that's their right. food and feel joyous around it it should be a celebration <laughs> and as you know with like your when you were initially diagnosed like all you focus on is what you can't eat because that is your that's what you know you know that's that's your security blanket that's that's what you've always eaten so it seems like your whole world of food is just being taken away from you and it's at that moment and that time it just seems so narrow um however if you have the right guidance often it's pretty amazing how a whole new world expands out and you get this education along the way and you learn how to work with new flavors and the irony for us is when we work with gut issues that we often find that majority of our clients have got a a diet that is so much more diverse than the average person who may eat like an average Western diet, you know, their, their dietary intakes are amazing. Um, and I always, I always love that because if you speak to someone who's not well-versed in understanding, I guess, um, intolerances and so forth, the, often the response is, oh, what do you eat? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you mustn't be able to eat anything. It's like, well, actually, you'd be surprised. <laughs> Yeah, I used to get that all the time. People would be like, "Oh my gosh, I couldn't I couldn't do it. I couldn't do what you do. There's nothing left to eat." And I would say, "Actually, I eat the most varied and broad range of foods now. I just don't eat 
all mm. the processed crap. I just eat real food, natural food, and mm. it's original source and it's delicious and I love it. It's colourful. My plate is always bursting with different colours. But the good thing um, that I've found now and for any of the listeners that, that don't know where I'm at in my personal journey is that since my gut has become much healthier and it's much less... Um, well, I don't have SIBO now and my naturopath and I have worked on, you know, healing up the leaky gut mm-hmm. and the motility and the movement of my gut. I can now eat foods that I couldn't eat for years mm. and it's really nice to be able to have that freedom back again. I've just come back from a long weekend with my partner's family and and I've eaten quite a lot of gluten, which I don't normally eat. Mm-hmm. But what's nice is that I don't have to be that annoying person anymore going, I can't eat this and I can't eat that. <laughs> annoying to me. I'm sure it didn't annoy everybody else, but it annoyed me that I had to be so restrictive and I was always, you know, looking at food labels and all the rest. And now I can say, okay, for four days, I'm not going to worry too much about what I eat because when I come home, I'll be straight back into normal life, which is a really broad-based diet with lots and lots of vegetables and all sorts of things and very minimal processed food. So that's a really great place to be able to get to ultimately. Oh, yeah. We see that. We do a lot of um, IgG and IgA food intolerance testing at the clinic and it's, it's fascinating seeing results come back some of them so highly reactive and starting with clients from the point of view of those test results and gut health and working with them over a couple of months or more and then you know let's say six months later you look at that test result again and you start to say okay let's start bringing some of these foods back let's work our way backwards through these low reactants and medium reactants and it's amazing, you know, nine times out of 10, these people are able to bring majority of these foods back into their diet because you've addressed the underlying cause. Um, and I love that. Again, it's, um, it's really exciting. It's, and it, 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 of course, highlights the fact that it's about your gut function. Yes, there are some underlying food intolerances and allergies that are highly problematic and they may be there for life for some people, but that might be one or two things. It's not going to be 10. So yeah, it's pretty exciting to see. Yeah, yeah, it is definitely. Um, One of the things that I see quite a lot is people um, are sticking to these restricted diets for a long time. Something like the low FODMAP diet. I, I seem to hear a lot from people saying I've been on it two years three years four years um do you have a personal view around um you know whether we should or shouldn't be staying on these diets long term and whether you feel that there's any um long-term implications on on the health of our gut if we do stay on these diets for a very extended period of time yeah I'm pretty passionate about that um I'm not a fan at all at staying on very restrictive diets long term because what you eat influences your gut bacteria um which is obviously why the SIBO diet um, and these other types of diets exist um and they work fabulously in the short to medium term to help with rectifying the health issues however the longer you apply these really extreme dietary approaches the longer you're changing that microbiome you're really influencing the type of bacteria that are going to thrive there and if we're not 
feeding them long term with certain types of prebiotics and so forth and that's going to influence um, our health by not getting certain short chain fatty acid production and so forth um, there's a there's a really I guess a, a plethora of, um, of results that can come from that from not putting the right foundations there for our gut bacteria long term um, and you know that that's something that I don't think that people really think about when they're putting these dietary processes together and doing them perhaps again without enough guidance so all they know is that if they eat this way they feel better their symptoms are under control so they feel like they're in a safe place if they stick within those foundations but realistically yeah you really need to think about long term if you have this narrow food intake then you're really you know the other thing actually from that is that you're you're never really going to be able to expand out of that um, and perhaps find a place where you're not reacting to foods anymore because you're not allowing your gut to be exposed to different types of foods and the longer you do that the longer you are potentially in a place where no matter what you eat seems to react so it becomes a vicious cycle if that makes sense Mm, yeah it definitely um i can see how that can happen and and then there's the whole emotional side and psychological component that you then become fearful around the foods and then you don't want to eat it more broadly and you sp- I can see that one could spiral, spiral, spiral down into an ever-tightening circle of, yeah. uh, of problems around food and symptoms. Yeah, and I think the other thing too is that, you know, if you feel, say someone, I mean, FODMAPs is a really common one at the moment people are doing the FODMAP diet as a diet you know they're not seeing it as like a short-term approach plus they're treating it as the no FODMAP diet as opposed to the low FODMAP diet which is another issue Um, but essentially they stay within those walls of the FODMAP diet because their symptoms aren't exacerbated but again like if two to three years later, you're still on that diet and you go out and you're exposed to, say, a lot of onion in a dish or whatever whatever the ingredient is and you get a flare, it's not a a sign that you're reactive to those foods. It's it's a sign that your gut still isn't right, that the problem hasn't been addressed. Um, And from my point of view too, the longer that's stays that way the worse the problem becomes so then that's that's why i think that the the walls start to close in more and more because the more you eliminate the more you're and the more you eliminate and the more you're not dealing with the underlying gut issue the more you're going to have to continue eliminating because you're going to just become more and more reactive so again it becomes this vicious little cycle and not a very nice place to be Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. No, it's not. It's awful for anyone that's that's in that condition. Um, and there's plenty of listeners who are there right now. They're there today going, that's me. <laughs> is there, do you have any advice on, and again, this is, this is a question I get asked often is how do I uncover what's going wrong in my gut? How do I uncover what caused SIBO in the first place? I have no idea. Yeah. It could be a multitude of things. How, how can someone begin that investigative process of mm-hmm. trying to peel back the layers of what's going on so that they can start to, you know, try and heal that underlying cause and move forward? I think without question, testing needs to be looked at. I really do. I mean, you could work with a practitioner and work at it from an elimination dietary point of view and then make assumptions based there on responses but honestly with what we have at our fingertips now testing is the way forward see see a practitioner who works with gut issues specifically um, ask around get get um, some good advice to start with as to who to see I think that's really important but then look at testing look at SIBO testing look at comprehensive stool analysis so first from my point of view, you need to differentiate there as to what's going on. Often with SIBO, there will be lower bowel issues and conversely, they can definitely be uh, occurring together. So if you're in a place to do both tests, that's fantastic. Um, I think also within that environment of testing too, if you can look at food intolerance testing, I think that's fantastic. For me, the more pieces of the puzzle that we have, the quicker we can get in there and we can work with healing the gut, working with the diet in the right way because that testing really becomes a blueprint for that client. Um, Once we have all of that information, I often say to my clients, it's like you're giving me a, a looking glass into your gut. I can see everything I need to see. So let's get that information together Um, And then we can move forward really quickly. And the testing, I I totally understand that it's an investment. But from my point of view too, you will spend so much more on trying this and trying that with different approaches if you just keep going down that track of, yeah, buying a supplement here and taking someone's advice off a blog there and also you'll end up another year down the track with the issues still going on so I just I mean I guess I'm biased because I come from a place where I want everyone's gut to be amazing and I know that it can be but I think investment in testing is so important and look you may do a SIBO test and it comes back negative great that's fantastic we know that that's not the issue then we can look further at another type of test that might be more appropriate. So, you know, it's it's really, really helpful to utilize those tools that are there. And they're easy to do too. You know, they're all they've all got their different collection methods, but 
they're all simple. There's all, they've all got sets of instructions that come with them. Um, and then once you have those results, you can work with a practitioner to put everything into place from a diet point of view and a supplement point of view. So yeah, yeah. I, it's a no brainer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I know for my own um, journey, uh, the first test I did was the SIBO breath test, um, which came back positive and I was hydrogen dominant mm-hmm. SIBO. But then my naturopath and I, um, after a few months of treating the SIBO, we then did some additional testing. Um, mm-hmm. So we did a leaky gut test through a urine um, test. And we also did the IgA, IgG test to look at um, what my immune system was doing both locally and full body wise around certain foods. Um, and we also did the comprehensive stool analysis mm-hmm. test. So my naturopath, it, what was great was that once we'd got rid of the SIBO because we knew that was the mm-hmm. um, that was a big issue. It was causing a lot of my symptoms. And as soon as we were getting that under control, most of my symptoms disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, but then once we'd got the, we retested tested for SIBO that came back negative and then we looked at well what else is happening in my gut Mm -hmm. Uh, what was really fascinating to me was when we did the comprehensive stool analysis that there was very minimal um, immune cell function showing up in my gut and I had been chronically sick for so many years and I got every single thing going Mm -hmm. Um, and it kind of gave me an explanation as to why, given yes. that our immune system is, you know, the first line of defense is our, is our digestive system yeah. for the immune system. And mine just wasn't there. It was on vacation. It was elsewhere. It didn't exist. Um, and But really interestingly, you know, my, my, I don't get sick anymore and we will retest, we will redo the stool analysis and the um, IGA, IGA, IgG test and the leaky gut test. Um, It'll be really, really interesting to see what's happened now. But it gave my naturopath the ability to say, These, this is what we need to focus on now. Here are supplements that I know can support these functions. Eradicate eggs um, and cane sugar from your diet while we calm the inflammation yeah. down. You know, we had a whole very methodical approach to That's it. And, it. hey, it's worked. I feel I feel amazing now. It's really good. And actually now I can tolerate some eggs again and I've been testing them and just seeing what's mm-hmm. happening and I don't have any reactions to them, which is wonderful because I love eggs. That's so great. <laughs> yeah, they're a hard one. <laughs> Yeah. They are. They were my lifesaver when I was going through SIBO treatment. And then I'm glad in a way I found out at the end of the SIBO treatment that yeah. my immune system wasn't coping with them. <laughs> but I mourned them every day. Every morning I mourned my breakfast of eggs. <laughs> oh, um, that's great. That's so important, doesn't it? Of the, the lack of using the tests and using them at the right time for you. You know, that's that just it's so important to to have all of those pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, it is. And now we're, we've reintroduced um, probiotics and other supplements. So we're not doing it all at once. We're being really slow and methodical. I feel amazing. Um, and it's really interesting. Every time I add something new in now, I can really feel the benefit that it's bringing to my body because it feels like it's the right time for my body. I think if I tried to do it all at once, it would have been overwhelming mm. and I would have probably been in a highly flared state. Yeah. But now I um, not only am I much more in tune with my body, so I feel how it's feeling. I'm very conscious of it. Um, but I know when it's time to do something new. And so does my naturopath. We're a really great little team. So the, the importance of finding someone that's a, 
in tune with you and has the skills and the expertise to help you on your journey I think is so important and I just you know I wish everyone had my gorgeous naturopath in their lives because she's been amazing for me um one other thing that people uh get quite we we often get quite hooked up on about because popular culture talks about it are things like pre and probiotics and fermented foods and you know I think bloggers are great I, I I have a blog myself but sometimes I think when people are talking about you must have fermented food every day it can often be very confusing especially for those of us that have digestive disorders and perhaps mm, it's not the right time definitely. so what's your approach to using things like pre and probiotics and, yeah. and fermented foods in someone particularly with someone with SIBO yeah again a broken record I know but it is individualized um so it'll come down to what they can handle. Usually, usually with SIBO, and to be honest, um, with the majority of the gut issues that we deal with, particularly if there's a really strong yeast overgrowth um, or dysbiosis as well, we do tend to shy away in the initial stages um, from fermented foods and sometimes prebiotics as well. Um, it really does come down to what specific bacteria we might be seeing there. Um, so what we'll do is we'll take those out of the diet for, say, a, again, maybe a four to six week period. Um, often it can be a little longer. And then what we'll do is we will slowly reintroduce them. So as we are seeing that the gut is getting stronger um, and we're seeing symptoms dissipate and we've also been able to loosen up the diet in other ways with perhaps introducing a bit more starch and more variety of vegetables and fruits and so forth we'll then essentially just challenge the body so we'll start to look at introducing some fermented foods and see how they're tolerated and generally the gut's pretty good it will tell you if um, it's ready to have those in the diet Um, we would probably we tend to go more with I would say things like your really nice sauerkrauts and kimchi, um, those sorts of foods first. Um, we probably wouldn't, we don't tend to jump straight back into things like kombucha and so forth. We find that they often can be a bit of a problem for people for a, a little longer. Um, and kombucha is so popular right now, everyone's just drinking it down. <laughs> Um, they are it's everywhere everyone's talking about (laughs) it like (laughs) guzzling their bottles away um so yeah it is something that we are a little bit wary of in the initial stages in saying that some of our supplements that we use will have some prebiotics in them um so depending on say with SIBO specifically um we'll look at those supplements um and see okay what specific prebiotic is in this supplement is that something that we're going to get benefits from are we looking at something that might actually give us a positive response um and we can look at utilizing that whereas in some of the lower bowel issues we tend to find that all of them tend to be out for a certain amount of time so i feel i actually feel like with SIBO there's sometimes a little bit more flexibility around supplemental prebiotics um, and how they can be utilised. 
Mm, and I, I've actually got a, um, an interview coming up with Dr. Jason Horolek uh, yeah. in a couple of months uh, and it's going to be all around oh. pre and probiotics. Yeah. So I can't wait for that interview because he is, he is such an expert in this yeah. field and I know my listeners will be loving that episode. <laughs> yeah, well, they, yeah, exactly. Like he definitely has so much knowledge and so much research there to show the benefits in regards to how prebiotics can be used and there's certainly something that we've utilized um, in the clinic and haven't seen a negative effect that's for sure with including them with the treatment Um, so that's been really nice to see and then um, with probiotics as well um, there's certainly something that we've utilized we probably don't we probably this is very much a generalization but I would say we don't use probiotics straight up Um, we would tend to probably use our antimicrobials first with sometimes a little bit of um, some prebiotics, but then definitely probiotics have got a really important um, part to play. And again, a lot of the research that that he's done has has shown that too in regards to certain strains. Um, We use a lot of, I think I mentioned before, the LGG strain here, um, which I just love. Yeah, and I, I, I can't wait to have Jason on the show because he'll just uh, be able to share all of that research and knowledge and wisdom mm-hmm. with the listeners. Something that also causes a, quite a lot of heated debate is around this concept of starving or feeding bacteria whilst in active treatment phase. Do you do either of them um, uh, when it comes to uh, working with a person with SIBO? Yeah, I would probably more likely to work in a space where we would initially um, starve, inverted commas, bacteria um, at the start of a protocol. So we'll generally look at a a dietary approach um, and a supplemental approach, which is about creating a die-off of the bacteria. Um, And then after a certain amount of time, depending on their response, we'd look at bringing back in from a food point of view a little bit more fuel and for us too that's a really great way of gauging where a client is at Um, because often if you you feed the bacteria a little bit um, it will give you an indication of how much of a um, a obviously a strong response you're going to get and therefore give you an indication of where the level of bacteria might be at um, I mean, obviously retesting is really imperative for that too, but we find if we go with the realistically that starve, um, starvation of bacteria in our initial stages, we tend to, to see some, um, some better results. And that's probably something that we apply to the dysbiosis within the lower bowel as well, um, yeast overgrowth, all thus generally that, that whole spectrum. Mm, that's that's really interesting, and uh, and there really is two schools of. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I see you're probably yeah, out there. <laughs> yeah, people are either they do it or they do it the other way. Yeah. It's really interesting. My practitioner took the approach of doing that, you know, uh, restricting the foods to bring the numbers down in my small intestine, and then reintroducing slowly more fermentable fibers and all the rest. Yeah, it worked well for me. That so you like know, but do. again. Yeah. It's yeah, it's very individual, and um, but it's interesting. Those that 
it seems practitioners who take a more natural approach around with food and perhaps herbal supplementation seem to uh, be more in line with the starvation method. Mm -hmm. And then the practitioners that use antibiotics as their primary um, method for reducing bacteria in the small intestine seem to not all, but some, they, there seems to be more of a, a trend towards this concept of feeding the bacteria to bring mm-hmm. them out whilst treating on antibiotics. Yeah. So. yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And look, I, I maybe it's a time will tell thing too if there's a, a better way about it. I mean, at the end of the day, as long as you're getting the results for your client, that's the most important thing. But I know... I know from how we've worked with clients over the years, it's a protocol that tends to work. I think the most important thing is that you don't just continue trying to starve bacteria ongoingly. At some point, you need to start to feed and re-challenge the gut. Yeah, definitely. Um, Something else that uh, gets asked of me quite often is the concept of, again, there's so much discussion around this around eating many times during a day or only eating a cu- like twice a day perhaps. Um, so either eating frequently or really giving the digestive system a, a quite a long break between meals. Do you a- apply either method with your patients or again is it a case-by-case scenario? Yeah, I'd say case-by-case depending on what's going on. Um what's going on with their gut and honestly what's going on with their life as well in regards to their lifestyle and what their requirements are. So from a SIBO point of view, we'd probably be more so encouraging them to eat probably three main meals a day um, and having them not snack as continuously. We find that's a better approach, Um, whereas... If we're working with someone maybe with more of a, a lower bowel issue, we might be a little bit more flexible um, in regards to including some snacks in there. So, you know, that's sort of like a, a rough guideline of how we might operate in that way. But then you need to, you really do need to look at um, what the demand of that person is. So if you've got someone coming to you who is up really early in the morning and they're uh, training, say they're spending like an hour on a bike um, and, you know, or they're training for a half marathon or whatever it is that they might be doing, you, you really need to look at, okay, how can we make this work for you? you? You can't just have your breakfast and then not eat for another sort of four or five hours from the time you get up in the morning through till a late lunch when you've you've been out training so in some aspects you do need to bend the rules to make it work for that person um i find as long as those meals are balanced correctly too and obviously you're going to be able to sustain them better through the day but i do to come back to SIBO i do really think that if you can get someone not snacking continuously then it's going to be better for them into in regards to supporting that um migrating motor complex that's obviously going to be really important um and then and then at night if possible getting them to have an early dinner and not snacking later in the evening so they get that really nice period from dinner right through to breakfast um we'd certainly be encouraging that where possible 
Mm, and I found it interesting when I went on to the SIBO um, biphasic diet that having been someone that couldn't really go more than about three hours between meals or snacks, that when I went on to that program, thinking I'd always be hungry, I was actually, it was the opposite. I was, I felt really full. Mm. There were times when I just didn't feel like I needed to eat and I'd, and sometimes I wouldn't have lunch and it wasn't because I was actively avoiding it. It was just that I just simply wasn't hungry because I was eating this, I was eating really good quality um, protein and lots of mm-hmm. um, vegetables and some nuts and seeds and things like that. And some, and I had oil. I was mm-hmm. eat, having more oil or good fats in my diet than I'd ever had before. And it was so satisfying for me because there was no sugar uh, giving me any of those um, horrible blood sugar spikes and dips anymore. And uh, I felt great. I was like, well, I'm, I'm actually really satisfied on this program. Yeah, um, that's it. it was a surprise. That's that, again, that um, if you've got that right, balance you've got a whole food approach really nutritionally balanced then you can generally really apply like a a a three meal a day um way of eating without too many concerns it's it's when people don't really understand how to build a meal in a balanced way that they run into problems that they're having their breakfast and an hour later they're starving hungry so again yeah it's working with someone who knows how to create that meal plan for you yeah definitely um one of the final question i have is around um shopping for food it's something that we all have to do do you have any advice or tips on how people can find the best um, quality food to help support them at a nutritional level you know should we be looking at just having organic food or mm-hmm. are there certain things that we should be looking for on packaging that we are your big no-nos what's your advice on mm-hmm. yeah getting the best out of our food when we're buying it from the supermarket I think as first and foremost trying to ensure that your food is whole food and by that I mean fruit, vegetables, um, meat, protein, if you're including that, um, your, your good quality fats and your nuts and your seeds and so forth. Realistically, putting real food in your shopping trolley is first and foremost the most important thing that you can do. Um, the more packaged food that you're bringing into your diet, the more usually you're bringing in processed food, um, then that's going to include different sorts of preservatives and additives and so forth. In saying that, I think if there are certain foods that you're buying that are packaged and so forth, getting used to looking at the back and checking for certain um, common additives that might be problematic. Usually one of the biggest ones, MSG, which is 621, tends to really knock people around with gut issues, um, nitrates are really important to keep an eye out for. But I really think anything that you're looking at where you're looking at the back and half of the ingredients you don't understand, then realistically you don't want to be putting that into your shopping trolley. Um, it's always about the more natural, the better. Organic, look, if you can afford organic, um, that's great. I think sometimes it can stress people out more. Um, so I, I always say, look, just if you can purchase some organic produce, make it more about your fruit and your vegetables, it's a good place to start. And if you can look at hunting down some local farmers markets or online, there's some really great options there now where you might be able to get some seasonal produce delivered. 
Um, and that's the great thing about farmer's markets too, is that you're generally going to be pushed towards eating more seasonally, which I think is really, really fantastic. Um, and look, I think preservative wise too, like there's, there's a lot of preservatives that aren't fantastic and there's some information out there. Um, Oh, I'm trying to think of the name. There's a really great little booklet that you can get and that's probably online now too. I think it's called The the Maze. Mm, I can't think of it. I'll have to let you know. <laughs> Maybe it's a show note one. Um, but they're, you know, not all of them are going to be really bad. You can get, for instance, vitamin C as a preservative and so forth. That's where I think sometimes having a reference guide to refer to can be quite advantageous. But honestly, as long as you're going for a whole food approach, um, you're, you're not going to be running into problems as far as what you decide to pop in the trolley. You know, if you know what it is, you know that it's basically something that grew in the earth in some capacity, um, then generally things can't be too bad. Yeah, I think that's great advice and it's something that I now um, implement with my food. I really aim to eat food in its original state, so be it fruit, vegetables or meat or anything like that. And I, I really have reduced significantly the amount of processed food that I eat um, to the point where now really the only time I go to the supermarket is to buy toilet paper yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and maybe some oil. But a, a lot of that I also get from my health food store. So um, it's a really different experience now um, on how I used to eat. Yes, I think you'll find the more you move towards a whole food diet, the less time you spend in supermarkets and that doesn't mean you need to spend more money. I think ironically it can be the other way. I think, you know, you just need to look at where you can source these other foods that are going to be better for you from a nutrition point of view. As I said, like seasonal produce and it might just mean once every fortnight because they generally tend to last longer or once a week. Yeah, you put aside an hour on a Sunday morning to go to your local farmer's market Um and you pop into your local bulk health food store and, and grab a few bits and pieces. And, yeah, I actually think your shopping bill tends to go down more than anything. Yeah, and, I, and the other interesting thing that I didn't realise was even on the foods that I wouldn't consider as overly processed, but they're, they're still processed food. Uh, it's not like I'm going and eating crisps and chocolate bars, but yeah. on other items um, – let's say on the occasional piece of bread that I have um, or something else like that, I can feel it. I feel that nutritionally I just didn't get a really great meal. I don't feel vibrant. And so my desire to eat the processed food also dimin has mm -hmm. diminished greatly when I can feel um, good on the food yeah. that I'm eating. So, yeah. yeah. I love seeing that in clinic with clients, how their palate changes so, you know, when they first, you make those changes initially, as I said, it's like having the rug pulled out from underneath you and then you learn all of these new flavours and so forth and then there comes an opportunity somewhere along the way where maybe you're offered a picnic bar or you go eat an ice cream or whatever it is and in your mind you associate it with tasting a certain way and then you, you take a bite and you're like, oh this is actually nothing like I remember. And there's the, the, the actual, the, our taste buds change and we, we start to 
really appreciate the sweetness in natural foods more and then suddenly sugar like added sugar becomes really something that's um quite distasteful it's it always fascinates me I remember feeling that exact experience when I first tried something sweetened after my SIBO treatment and I had longed for something sweet Mm -hmm. and then I took a bite and my taste buds felt like they hurt and it was so unpleasant and I felt so sick from it. I just didn't, it just didn't, it wasn't an enjoyable experience whatsoever and I wanted to eat, you know, I used to make my own, well I still do, my own um, chocolate just with, you know, raw cacao powder and raw cacao butter Mm -hmm. and a little bit of 100% natural stevia ground leaves Mm -hmm. Um, and for me that is so sweet and it's plenty. Other people think it tastes horrible. (laughs) For me, I can can taste the sweetness in it now that I don't have a a mouth that's constantly bombarded with over-sweetness. So it's a very, very interesting journey that one goes on. Um, Jessica Cox, thank you so much for coming on to the Healthy Gut Podcast today and sharing your wisdom on all things nutrition. If anybody would like to connect with you, what's the best way for them to reach out and um, connect with you? The best way would be definitely jumping online. So they can go to jessicacox.com.au and through there you can go to the clinic tab. You'll be able to find all the information about the JCN clinic and be able to contact us through the contact section. You'll also find me online um, on Instagram at Jess Cox Nutritionist and on Facebook too at Jessica Cox Nutrition. So um, if all else fails, just Google Jessica Cox Nutritionist and I'm sure something will pop up. <laughs> yeah, and all those links are in the show notes for anyone that would like to make contact with you. So thanks once again for coming on to the Healthy Gut Podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed episode 21 with nutritionist Jessica Cox. If you would like to connect with Jessica or get a copy of the full transcription or the show notes with any of the links that we've talked about today, all you need to do is head to thehealthygut.co forward slash Jessica. And if you have been thinking about perhaps signing up to the SIBO coaching program that I am launching very shortly, this is the final week to sign up for it. Once we have finished out this week, uh, the registrations will close for the next couple of months. So if you're looking for help with your SIBO journey and you feel that you need just that little bit of extra support that you're not currently getting through your own current treatments, then head to thehealthygut.co forward slash interest where you can register your interest and I'll send you some more information about the SIBO coaching program. I absolutely love hearing your feedback, so don't forget to write a recommendation or give us a rating in iTunes or any of the other platforms that you might use to listen to this podcast. And you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. Just look for us under The Healthy Gut. Coming up on episode 22 of The Healthy Gut, we're joined by Daniela Paloni. 
Daniela is one of the administrators of the very popular and ever-growing SIBO Facebook group. So we talk a little bit about the history of the group, what it does now, why it's so important for people in their journey with SIBO. We also talk about things like the cost of SIBO, both financial and emotional. And Daniela shares her own journey with this chronic and often painful condition. So join us next week for episode 22 with Daniela Poloni. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.